Well, my guest today is Scott Camp. Scott, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk with me. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Would you start by just giving me a, a, some, a bit of your background? Yeah, I didn't grow up in the church. My mom was 15 years old when she got pregnant with me, and uh, my parents got married because of that, but we had no church affiliation or religious inclination, really. And my parents got a divorce. Their marriage uh, broke up when I was about six or seven years old. And that really put me on a path that would uh, end up within a decade of being arrested and booked on a felony charge and uh, put in a county jail awaiting sentencing. And it was there in that jail cell. Having been witness to uh, a month earlier by some really on fire teenagers in my high school who were kind of caught up in the tail end of the Jesus movement and had been to a youth camp and experienced the life-changing power of the gospel. And they just shared with me the simple uh, story of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and told me that what he did, he did for me and that my life could be changed if I would trust him. And in a, you know, I rebuffed that initially, but a month later I was in jail and got on my knees and asked Christ to, to change me. If he was really alive and, and I had a sense that he was, it's, it's hard to put that in kind of a propositional form, but somehow, like uh, Jesus said, the wind blows where it wants to, and the wind was blowing in that jail cell, and when I walked out, I was a new person. That was 40 years ago. Uh, next month, I'll celebrate 40 years as a Christian, 41 years as a, as a follower of Jesus. Had no idea, you know, where that would take me now around the world and, uh, you know, through different channels of being able to just keep that simple story front and center of, of who Christ is, what Christ has done in my life and what he can do in the lives of others. And, and where was that? Where did you grow up? Well, I, I, I'm sitting right now in my home, uh, less than 20 minutes from where that happened, in Fort Worth, Texas. And I've been all over the world and lived in other places, but uh, I'm right back uh, in the same area where all that took place 41 years ago now. Wow. And you, you lived for some time in Virginia, is that right? No, uh, I, I never did. I traveled uh, quite a bit through the 90s and mm. uh, spoke at Liberty University and had a great friendship with Dr. Falwell. You know, I, Scott, I came to Christ in the, in the heyday and of what would become the rise of the religious right. I, I was saved in February of 1980. And... Uh, you know, I, I was immersed in very conservative, uh, initially fundamental independent Baptist uh, life. And of course, Falwell was an independent Baptist, having uh, graduated from Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Illinois. And I was going to a church that was associated with that whole movement. And uh, my uncle had become a Christian and was even a pastor. So I went to work for him on his church staff at this independent Baptist church, really growing congregation. And one of the first things he did is uh, said, man, we're going to we're going to go to something called the religious roundtable. 
And at the time, it was headed by a, a guy named Ed McTeer, James Robinson, who later became a dear friend and is a dear friend to this day. Uh, Jerry Falwell was there, Dr. Criswell, where I went to college at Criswell College and later worked for Dr. Criswell was there. So I was there from the very beginning because of my uncle's influence. You know, I was 18 years old, a brand new Christian, but that was my experience almost immediately. I was baptized into this, uh, this uh, conflation of evangelicalism and uh, right-wing uh, Republican politics. So how would you describe your sense at that time of the relationship between your Christian faith and the cultural agenda that, as you say, you were baptized into? As I say, there was just a conflation. In other words, in my mind at that time, to be an evangelical meant to be uh, pro-life. James Dobson was really popular at the time. He was beginning to talk about uh, things like gay marriage. I never even thought about that, but it became uh, part of the platform. Phyllis Schlafly was around talking about uh, the Equal Rights Amendment. And so all of these things in my mind as a young Christian were uh, wedded together. To be an evangelical meant to be a, uh, a Republican. I, I really, at that time, probably would have said something like, I don't understand how anybody could be a Christian and not be a part of the Republican Party. And mainly centered around the issue of abortion, uh, which, interestingly enough, uh, a Presbyterian brought into, you know, the life of uh, Independent Baptist and then Southern Baptist, uh, Francis Schaeffer. And um, so that was really my worldview. And it remained my worldview, I got to be honest with you, until uh, around until the Iraq War, un until and I mean, the, the George Bush, George W. Bush until that period of time and then the rise of Obama. Some things happened in my personal life, the direction of my ministry, my educational experiences really begin to broaden my perspective on cultural issues and really on what had become a political party using evangelicalism and wedge issues to uh, to divide people in the United States, people of faith. Mm. Now, the other thing is, Scott, that you have to realize is this happened at the exact same time that the Southern Baptist Convention, which I later became a part of. But I mean, and I say later, I mean, within months I had moved. I joined a Southern Baptist church, very conservative, still had the same kind of mentality. Uh, it really was a kind of an independent leaning Southern Baptist church. But at the same time, there was uh, what's been called the resurgence uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention, which uh, revolved around the issue of the inerrancy of the Bible. So uh, and anyone who did not uh, use that shibboleth of inerrancy was considered to be a liberal and so I sure didn't want to be considered a liberal. And then I went to Criswell College uh, when Paige Patterson was the president there. Became he became like a dad to me. 
I went on staff at First Baptist Dallas. So you can see, I mean, this was just, for me, all of these things came together. my maternal grandfather was on the board of trustees at Southeastern mm-hmm. during the conservative resurgence. He was the chairman of the board for a while. Uh, and when Randall Lawley was there and those, uh, those guys, I, yeah, it was from 85 to 95. I want to sure. say. Yeah. Well, he, he saw it firsthand. Yes. Yes. I read, he used to tell, tell stories about it uh, every once in a while. Yeah. I remember him saying that he, would have regarded himself as more of a moderate going in, but then it became clear that there wasn't going to be any, any sort of a compromise on either side. And he made the decision, look, I mean, if I've got to pick between liberal and conservative, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with the folks who like believe that the Bible is true. (laughs) Right. Right. So I'm not um, sure that we had any Southern Baptist professors uh, that didn't believe the Bible was true. It really came down to a, an issue of interpretation. I, I don't think you would have any Southern Baptist professors during that period of time who would say, I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I don't believe oh. in the, the uh, you know, the core tenets. I, I can't recite the Apostles' Creed with a clear conscience. So liberalism, uh, in the terms of classical liberalism, Fosdick liberalism, what uh, G. Gresham Machen was writing about and dealing with, did not exist. It never existed in the Southern Baptist Convention. This Mm. was was, uh, looking back, and I was very involved in this. I preached at the convention in 1991 preached at the largest churches in the Southern Baptist Convention toward the end of the 80s. Um, th- this, was a, this was a power play. Th- th- this was a quest for control of the resources of the largest Protestant denomination in the world. Hmm. You could have put all the real liberals in the Southern Baptist Convention in a telephone booth. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... That, that puts me in mind of something that Samuel Perry, the sociologist, said the other day about the folks in the Southern Baptist Convention or really broader conservative white evangelicalism who endorse critical race theory. He said, if you're really concerned about that, you should like hold a conference a- in a large Starbucks right. and you could probably get all of them together. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Scott, it's no I don't think it's any coincidence that. It's now I would not uh, compare Ronald Reagan with Donald Trump, Uh, although at the time there were concerns about Reagan, his background, et cetera. I mean, it was the first time that evangelicals had jumped on board with a man who had been divorced, uh, whose wife was deeply involved in astrology, who had come out of Hollywood. I mean, Hollywood was, you know, that was antithetical to everything that conservative Christians believed in. I mean, that was interesting, but I still I, I wouldn't make that comparison between Ronald Reagan and Trump. But I will tell you this, even in Southern Baptist life today, which I'm somewhat uh, still attached. I still speak in a lot of their churches that there are some organizational meetings, uh, some meetings of gatherings of evangelists. But there's a new rise. There, There is right now a new splintering, a new uh, potential 
split that is developing, brewing in the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, even yet again. It's like the generation younger than me, like maybe your age, uh, is itching for another fight. And what my and and some of it involves Trumpian politics and critical race theory, these kinds of things. And uh, I'm afraid that this time it could be lethal. I mean, it 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 severely weakened. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention now is a shadow of what it was prior to the conservative resurgence uh, across the board in terms of church growth, numerics, financial giving, uh, missions. I'm afraid that this time it could it could pull the plug on what is already a decimated denomination. It's very sad for me because it was my introduction to Christianity. I've since have a much broader ministry and and much larger circle of acquaintances, but it's still so, sad. So so my sense. T- tell me what what you think about this. My sense was that the conservative resurgence, say late seventies into the late eighties, I guess was the right the sort of the, the heat of the battle. Uh, my sense was that there were some some legitimate concerns over the notion of inerrancy, although cer- certainly inerrancy became code for a certain kind of political bent. And a um, way of interpreting the Bible, a, sure. a very wooden kind of reading of the Bible. Sure. So, so my sense is that that there were some legitimate concerns there, but then the folks who are now in the Southern Baptist Convention invoking the conservative resurgence, I mean, there's really nothing legitimate about it. But what I, if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, the the sort of transparent politics that are going on now, it was just as transparent back in the in the 80s. Well, here's where I knew something was wrong. I, I was uh, at the time attending the Criswell College. I think it was 1984. I was on staff at First Baptist Dallas. And uh, the school at that time, you know, we probably had 400 students. You know, it's a good school. Well, uh, about three months before the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, I think it was in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Paul Pressler was invited to come to the campus. And then there was a select group of students that were asked, probably maybe maybe 40 uh, students that were asked to meet with him. And he proposed, he made a proposal. He said, now some of you are members and staff members of large Southern Baptist churches. You're not going to get voted in to be a messenger from your church. So here's what we're asking you to do and to help us get all of the your fellow students to do. Join a church that's a smaller church uh, in the area. And uh, with the understanding that you can be voted in as a messenger, we will pay for your hotel room. We already have the rooms blocked off. And if you need help with travel expenses, we're happy to help you. And this is our plan. We, we have to uh, get everybody to Atlanta and we have to uh, defeat, you know, the moderate, you know, candidate who was not moderate, by the way, at all. He was a very Bible believing conservative. But, you know, he's not our guy. And how many of you will do this? And uh, every hand in the room went up except for me. And uh, interestingly enough, John McKay's son, Scott, John McKay was James Robinson's long-term music director of all his crusades. Scott and I sat there and looked at each other 
And I knew at that point we could, I couldn't lift my hand. Scott didn't lift his hand. Well, one thing I was on staff at a church, so I couldn't do it anyway. But I knew at that point, this is not really about doctrine, theology. This is sheer political theater. This is, this is about politics. And, you know, it would be years later before I would finally just give up on, I had a, 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 charismatic experience, a, a very powerful experience with the Holy Spirit uh, that I've written about in, in my first book, A Primrose Power. And to be a charismatic uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention was a, was a very difficult thing for a period of time. Uh, so that put me outside of, you know, I went from being who's who to being who's he, you know, in the Southern Baptist <laughs> Convention, young leaders. So, um, but, you know, I've never been... I have always, Scott, had one passion, that is to really know Jesus and to really make Jesus known. And, you know, I think I take the Bible not as literally, but more seriously than any other time in my life. And so um, for people who want to pick and choose what's important about the Bible, uh, that doesn't go over well. So, you know, women in ministry, uh, charismatic gifts, the embrace of leadership of people of color. Uh, I don't think that any local church movement, parachurch movement, or denomination or fellowship has a future that will not embrace women in ministry. By that, I mean across the board, uh, pastors, whatever God calls them to do, spiritual gifts, and people of color. If you don't have room for those dynamics, you have no future. So I think that it's hard to see a future for some of mine. And then you add to that political extremism on the right. And uh, young people are not going to, millennials are not interested in any of that. No, no I'm, I'm in the oldest cohort of the millennial generation. And between uh, graduate school and my teaching position I have now, I've, I've actually taught folks from every cohort of my generation and anecdotally, I, I see very, very few <laughs> of the folks from my generation having any interest in the right wing politics or the misogyny or the racism uh, or, and, and just the refusal to even talk about these things. Right. Yeah. And yeah. it's sad because you're talking about, you know, before the conservative resurgence of the 80s began, the Southern Baptist Convention had entered into a, a, a missiological uh, agreement as a as what 16 million members and 30,000 churches called Bold Mission Thrust, and the goal was to share the gospel with every person on the planet by the year 2000. Well, that immediately was uh, decimated and moved off the agenda in favor of arguing about who believes the Bible more. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> who believes the Bible more? Yeah. Yeah. It's apt. Wow. I'm stunned by that story about the, when you were in college, I've never, I, I had never heard any of that. Well, that went on because they would reserve the entire blocks of hotel room. And sure. uh, I mean, this is just crass political politicalization because you got a politician involved you, when, when you got judge Pressler involved uh, you, you got a, a politician involved. He's the one that figured out that if you could control 
the boards and agencies, uh, the trustees of every agency, every seminary that you could you could control, and that the president appointed these people. So you had to get you had to get the right president elected, who would then begin to purge the boards of anybody who was not uh, a friend, and uh, you had people appointed to these boards who were not qualified at all, but they were loyalists. They they were, uh, you know, mostly small church pastors who really uh, had very little ability or qualifications to be in those positions. But they were denominational, the new emerging denomination. They they were uh, friendly. So at what point did you start to disentangle, say, when I say politics, I mean, shifting back to the sort of like national uh, politics, but I, but I'm interested in any stories you have about denominational politics as well. But the, at the core of the question, I mean, when, when did you start to disentangle your faith from the sorts of national right-wing politics that, that, that the two had sort of been together when you, when you first came to faith? So how did you disentangle those? Uh, my wife and I left a very large uh, First Baptist church that we were pastoring in the suburbs, a very wealthy, white church, because we wanted to integrate the church. And th- that was not going over well. And uh, I saw that, you know, this this church does not have the heart to reach poor people, people of color broken people. They really want to be a country club with a steeple on top. So Gina and I resigned and we started a church that ultimately uh, was located in the heart of of an urban, uh, very uh, racially mixed, uh, ethnically mixed area that grew from a living room to a thousand people in seven years. And we called it a BMW church black, Mexican, and white. It was literally a third Hispanic, a third black, and a third white. When I I resigned the church to go back into evangelism uh, now over a decade ago, we had eight full-time pastors, and I was the only white guy left. So it was a a rich ethnic mix. Well, here's what happened. A lot of people, Scott, want, uh, it's, you know, it's kind of become cool to, to have some black people in your church or some Hispanic people, maybe even on staff. It's almost as if pastors would like to have black bodies in the, in the pews, but not black voices at the table. So what I began to see is life through the lenses, through the lens of all of these young men of color that were coming to Christ. Now, these were first generation Christians because I'm an evangelist. So we began to reach gangbangers and I mean, people from the margins of the culture and and all these people, these were not church people. These were first generation Christians. And as I began to share my life with them and they began to share their life with me and trust me, I began to see just how marginalized they were by structures. So they had families. These men worked 40, 50, sometimes 60 hours a week. But they weren't making any money. They, they were laborers, day laborers, construction workers. Many were illegal, you know, undocumented. But for they the, were listener, for the listener, Scott did air quotes when he said 
not illegal, just for just for the record. <laughs> Undocumented. Yeah. You know, they, they were, you know, that would have been my verbiage at the time. I mean, really, honestly. But the more I began to share my life with these young men and their families, the more it became obvious to me that racism was not just me uh, calling somebody a, a slur word, you know, or, uh, you know, the N word or whatever, you know, I grew up in that kind of a context, you know, very racist town, you know, it, that's a whole other story. But um, I began to see that, that it was the very structures and systems of this culture itself. Now I'd never heard of, of uh, critical race theory. I mean, I never, I never read a book on that, but then I began to read books by, uh, the Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cone, Black Liberation Theology. I began to read Guterres. I, be, I began to read Oscar Romero for the first time, just on my own. Uh, and I began to see, wow, you know, these guys are really speaking some truth here about structures and systems and what is the response of the church to have preferential uh, treatment and options for the poor, et cetera. And we began to put this into place just on a local, just in our church. And it changed my life. How did you do that just on the local level in your church? By reaching the people in the in the community. You know, the, here's what happened. Uh, we were given a 15 acre, 80,000 square foot facility in the heart of, a, of a, an, an area that had experienced white flight since the mid 80s. All the white people who were able had moved out and had gone into the suburbs where I, I went from the suburbs into this urban area and everybody else did just the opposite. Well, you know, all the houses and homes and everything were, were bought by black and brown people. And there were a lot of apartment complexes. And so we just started, I mean, as an evangelist, we just started evangelizing the area. We opened up a, a, a charter school went into partnership with a charter school. Well, that charter school within three years had 800 students. Well, we just began to reach out to those beautiful people and say, hey, come to our church, you know, come and, and be a part. You know, we would have meals together on a regular basis where everyone was to cook their, uh, you know, food that was indigenous to their culture. And we would all share it. You couldn't sit next to someone. I, I would say, if you look to your right and your left, if you're sitting next to someone that looks like you, then move, you know, don't sit at the table. We'd had a, we had a big gym, you know, we would have these meals together and, and I'd say, you know, you can't just sit all together. So there was intentionality, but it was reflecting honestly, my own growth as a person. And then that began to change my politics. When Barack Obama came along, I was very excited, not because I agreed with him on every political issue, but because I felt like this could be a tremendous symbol for healing um, in our nation, healing some wounds. Uh, turned out, I think it, it uh, there was a great backlash, really, that put Trump in office, a white lash, really, that put Trump in office. But those experiences just changed me. Then I began to travel more widely. India, uh, the, the continent of Africa, Southeast Asia. I, I just began, in other words, I... I I could no longer think as an American, white, evangelical, fundamentalist Christian. I, I could not. I began to see myself more as a global citizen of the world, 
Uh, we began to reach out aggressively to Muslims, build relationships with, with Muslims, build relationships with the, the gay community. My, my son, during that same time, uh, felt freedom to come out, my oldest son, and say, Dad, I'm gay, which was no surprise to me. I'd seen him grow up all his life. I knew, you know, I, I knew, I knew that day was coming. But I embraced our son. We began to have other people from the gay community attend our church. So this was a big transition uh, in every across the board. Now, do I still take the Bible seriously? Yes. Do I still believe in the centrality of Christ, the resurrection? It's yes, yes. Do I still passionately love people and want to see them come to to know Christ and and be healed by Christ? Yes. But I also see the church as a as a as a change agent. And as partnering to to alleviate the the suffering and injustice that's been afflicted on the least of these for 400 years now in this country. Yeah, and it seems like the church's uh, politics is oriented around seeking what I, I guess the the self appointed spokesman for the church uh, deemed to be our interests, right? So I mean, there's there's one question about what we should perceive our interest to be and then uh, in terms of our our own self-interest and then there's another question about whether that's what we should be after when we engage in politics as opposed to changing structures so that our society is more equitable so so can you talk a bit about that you said you can no longer see the world in terms of like you know you're like a white evangelical christian american etc uh, that shift from because there's a mentality there that like you're entitled to certain things and America's a Christian nation and there are certain cultural mores that we're entitled to enjoy that make us comfortable. The the shift from seeing things in those terms to oh actually like it's really not about that at all. No, it's it's really been about. Let me just give you a, a, an illustration, then we can talk in, in abstractions. When I was the pastor at the big First Baptist Church in the suburbs with the, you know, $30 million, you know, complex on 60 acres of prime land right off the highway with a million dollars in the bank at all times, just, in, you know, for a rainy. I mean, you know, the men in my church were the they owned every business in town. They sat on every board in town. They, they owned the major companies. They, you know, I remember building a new auditorium and we needed 1,200 uh, seats in the auditorium and somebody came and said, you know, what kind of chairs do you want? Do you want pews? Do you want chair? What do you want? And uh, I said, well, you know, the best thing would be theater chairs and said, well, that's great. Here's a check for half a million dollars. Go get them. So you can see why political interest that will conserve the wealth of those kinds of people in order to pay the bills at the church that you're pastoring can impact uh, your own political pronouncements, even from the pulpit. I mean, you know, I was on staff at the same time at First Baptist Dallas when Robert Jeffress was there as the youth pastor. I did evangelism. We've been friends for 36 years. He went away and was pastored a couple of other churches where he invited me to come preach. Uh, I've known him forever, you know, but... Uh, Obviously, his interest is he had a $150 million building that he needed to pay for, you know, in the midst of all the poverty of, of downtown. 
Uh, he didn't need the building because it's not really that much bigger than the one that they didn't want to use anymore. But it was new and and it made a landmark and it was the most money ever raised in the history of the church, you know, for a building, supposedly. So, you know, to pay those kinds of bills, you need a certain kind of people. You can't go get homeless people off the streets and hope to pay the bills when you're trying to build something like that. So a lot of it comes down to conserving conservatism wants to conserve the wealth of the people who are in the upper tiers of the culture. And Jesus turned that upside down. That's what I began to see. Jesus, you know, Jürgen Moltmann wrote a book called The Power of the Powerless. And most of us do not want to be identified as powerless. Let's just face it. We don't, I'm white, well-educated. I don't really in my natural you know, self want to go identify myself with marginalized people of color and sick people and poor people and people who can't afford to have health insurance. That has to be Jesus in me. Jesus in me has to drive me to the margins because that's where Jesus was. So I understand why a lot of young people are completely disillusioned with church as it is because they see that quickly, you know, they have a strong BS detector. They can see, you know, this is about money and power. And that's, you know, look at the pastor's car and the Rolex watch and the, you know, $1,500 suits. And they just don't want anything to do with that. For me, it's, it's, it's great because I see a rising, a grassroots rising of a new Jesus movement. But it's going to overthrow the current ecclesiastical structures that we've built. But I think it'll be a purer form of, of Christianity than what I've experienced in my 40-year sojourn, at least the first 30 years of it, was really about power, privilege, prestige, getting picked up in limos and driven to go speak somewhere. It's very heavy. So I think one thing that a lot of, uh, at least you know, this is anecdotal. Like, like people I talk to that, that are my age that are wrestling with the things that you mentioned. One thing that we struggle with is, okay, well, this is sort of where our faith came from. And it, a lot of it just seems to be bogus. Like, what do we do with that? And I'm not, I'm not describing like a genetic fallacy where you say like, okay, well, this information came from a source that's not, that's, that's right. not legitimate. So it must be fault. Like, not like that, but just like, this is the tradition that I came out of. How do I, like, do I just completely start over? Do, like, what do I, where do I, well, where, where do I begin? You know, some people are doing just the opposite of that. They're saying, well, I, I want to dig in deeper to the roots of, of historic Christianity. So you see a, a large movement of younger evangelicals, former evangelicals who are going back to the Catholic Church, to the Anglican Church, to the Orthodox Church, in search of, of, of a greater, you know, historically rooted expression. They love the liturgy. They love the, you know, the, the structure, the order. They love the ancient, you know, form. Then you have other people who are experimenting with new. But it, here again, it's more it's more. Uh, primitivist or more trying to be more authentically first century. So they're going into homes. You know, there's a huge movement now called the supper church movement, the dinner church movement, 
uh, where people are going into homes, they're going into parks, they're in, they're making food for you know twice as many people as they anticipate coming, so they can invite you know people to come and sit at the table, and it's more of an organic uh, you know kind of expression of faith. But I I really don't. I think that there could be a uh, there could be a, a resurgence on. The, the local church and neighborhoods, a church that has a hundred to maybe two or 300 people attending, you know, those church were basically the mom and pop churches that the mega church movement shut down. I mean, you know, when you begin to have the rise of Rick Warren and Bill Hybels and this, these kinds of mega church movements in the late eighties, you know, if you think about it before that time, there were probably 20 or 30 mega churches in the United States now there are 20 or 30 mega churches in Dallas, Fort Worth. And I'm now mega, mega, when I began in ministry, if you preached at a church that was 2000 or above, that was a mega church. We, we've blown those numbers out. But, but here's what happened. Those churches are not reaching unchurched people by and large. They're shutting down the mom and pop kind of, or the, the medium-sized churches of, of 100 to 250. That was always the strength, the backbone of, say, the Southern Baptist Convention. You had most of the churches, 100 to 250 people, vibrant, making a difference in the community, very community-oriented. People were committed there. They were involved in the program of the church. Mega churches shut those kind of, they, they decimated those churches. Those churches are, are shutting down. There could be a resurge. Uh, and if you're looking for more traditional denominational, um, you know, flavors, you could see the reemergence of churches that are more that size. But I don't know. You know, nobody we're not in our you know, I'm still involved in the academy. We're not really training people to pastor those kind of churches anymore. What we're training is church planters. And, you know, that's exciting. You know, there, there's excitement in that, you know. And maybe there could be new forms, new uh, multi-ethnic. Most of the churches that I preach in now are multi-ethnic churches that are really experiencing great growth. So, you know, it's not all bad news, but it is bad news for any denomination, fellowship, local church that's not open to people of color, women and charisms. You're not there's no future for outside of that. I mean, I, there was an article this week about the Archbishop of Canterbury. Did you see that article? It went all I, over. I didn't. That, I'm, I'm familiar that, with. Yeah. That he that he that he experiences these charismatic spiritual gifts as an ongoing part of his uh, discipleship. So uh, that's pretty. Really, amazing. Rowan Rowan Williams. No. Uh, oh. The article's all over. I know who Rowan Williams is. Yeah. I don't know if this guy's newly appointed. But uh, okay, that that I found surprising. Okay, yeah, no, I'll find it. I'll go find the article. That's interesting. His name is Justin Welby, mm. Archbishop Justin Welby. Praise in tongues every day. Wow, he is the Archbishop of Canterbury. BBC News. Isn't that interesting? That's that is fascinating. A particularly, of course, and, and this yeah. is the testimony of N.T. Wright. Of course, this began with Michael Green you know, in the, in the seventies, uh, hmm. with the charismatic renewal within the Anglican church. Hmm. N.T. Wright as well. I had no idea. Oh yeah. It's very open about it. Hmm. It's fascinating. 
In terms of the relationship between faith and politics, you, you see that you clearly see the future of the, I guess, the, the group of folks that we would identify as historically being evangelicals. You see that movement becoming a lot more decentralized. Would you would you say that's accurate? Decentralized. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And so so as far as the future of And we might just be in a post institutional, you know, period of our of our country. Yeah. It might just be we're gonna see the breakdown of a lot of institutions. Hmm. So would you would you say that where you see the uh, the sort of political commitments going, uh, it's not that there's gonna be a shift toward some kind of more so you so you see things going in a more decentralized direction where you've got more emphasis on local churches the way things used to be, right? And so rather than having this single sort of voting block, if you like, that takes its marching orders from certain people, uh, rather than that becoming sort of more progressive, it will just sort of that that whole way of doing things like as a voting block or whatever, you see that more sort of just imploding. I think so. I think yeah. my generation, when I, when I'm, you know, have passed on, I think my generation will be the last that thought like that. I think I think your generation, my my kids' generation, they're going to look for compassion toward the marginalized. Interestingly enough, though, they are by and large very pro-life. Oh, that's that that is the pro-life position, right? I mean, there's there's anti-abortion. Which is one facet of being pro-life, uh, but but it, it's not being anti-abortion is not a sufficient condition for being pro-life. So yeah. I think the Catholic Church, with its consistent ethic from Absolutely. womb to tomb, is going to be very appealing, if if not the structure of Roman Catholicism, but at least that uh, ethic. You know, if you could have a via media, you know, even in politics, that said, "Look, we're we're going to be." We're going to we're going to have a consistent pro-life ethic that's going to really care about people. We're going to have a kind of moderated form of of socialism uh, that's that's a healthy kind of like an FDR type, you know, uh, re-emphasis. I think it could just draw in, you know, these these younger people. I don't know what you'd call it. I don't see the I see the Republican Party. Uh, I'm I'm very concerned that it's going to continue to to pull hard right. Uh, it's looking that way, right? I mean, you've got the, the uh, house minority leader is still, still riding that same train. Uh, flying to Florida. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't see any future there for uh, young people. I, they're yeah. not gonna, they're not going to yeah. buy into that. No, no, we're not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I um, my sense is that it that God cares very little about who, like which particular candidate anyone votes for, and God cares a lot more about your motivations for voting in the way that you do. And my sense is that that is going to be uh, in the future that that will be more of the mentality, and so that, so there won't be a sort of like. Well, it used to be a tacit endorsement of candidates. Now it's just explicit. I don't know. I, I don't know when that just became. I, I don't know when the IRS just became cool with like pastors endorsing politicians. But yeah, that's <laughs> and you know, Scott, there could be a huge backlash. Uh, you know, I have a nonprofit 
and have had operated it for 30 some odd years. But there could be a because of this violation. Wouldn't that be ironic, too? Wouldn't that be ironic? (laughs) Because that's what started it right with segregation, not wanting to lose the tax exempt status. That that could happen. Hmm. Yeah. With these violations of the Johnson Amendment that are just uh, part and parcel now of of, uh, every every uh, televangelist, you know, of a certain ilk. Let me say one other thing, though, something that's very positive. Uh, Gene and I are members now of a, of a, a, we're still a part of a Southern Baptist church. Our pastor is African-American. You had him on your podcast. Oh, you go to Dwight McKissick's church. Cornerstone. So I I see a uh, reemergence of the centrality of of the African-American church, the black church in the United States. This is a great time. Uh, to be a part of uh, of of the black church, I think the black church uh, has taken a lot of hits over the last thirty years or so. And the cool thing was to become the multi ethnic kind of church, and it hurt a lot of black churches. But I think the black church has regained a certain uh, amount of of uh, importance and power, and and spiritual cachet. So we're excited to be there. I, I told my wife, if I were, if I were, you know, this is the philosopher thing, right? The thought experiment. If I were an alien, you know, from another planet and I had the Bible, never mind how I'm reading it, right? <laughs> but I read the Bible and I understand it, never mind how I understood it. Uh, and I touched down in America in 2020 and I, with the goal of finding the church, right? With, with no, no other knowledge, just the Bible. I, I have to think that the where I would identify the church would be predominantly black churches. Well, you sound like Bonhoeffer when he came over and said the only uh, oh, I didn't know the that. only the only true expression of Christianity that he found in America was at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, and he went there, huh. loved the choir, brought back to. Uh, his uh, seminary, the underground seminary at Finkenmull, he brought back the albums of the black choir and said, and, and had his German seminarians listen to those albums. And I don't know if it, you know, if it's the same experience that he got, but he was very taken up. He taught Sunday school there. Can you believe that? So Bonhoeffer came over, you know, for a while to teach at Union in New York, went to Abyssinian, taught a Sunday school class there and said that was the only true expression of Christianity that he found in America, was the black church. Wow. I think Adam Clayton Powell, senior, was the pastor there at the time. Wow. Well, that's, that's um, I think that's a good note to, to end on. <laughs> that's phenomenal. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I, I uh, when we talked a couple of weeks ago uh, with that panel, I, I, was I was taken with your your positivity your you have very positive energy I'm like a you know I'm a philosopher I tend I tend to be more you know cynical about things so yeah it's a, it's been a great pleasure talking with you and and getting a little bit of that energy the thing that I have not been able to get past Scott was that experience 41 years ago in a jail cell in Fort Worth where Christ the living Christ not a proposition not a creed 
but the living Christ changed my life. I've never been the same from that day. And that is what gives me hope. And Jesus said, I'm going to do something that no political force, nothing can ever change. I'm going to build something that is going to endure forever. And I'm, I'm glad to be a part of that. Hmm. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. God bless you. 